listening to Pregnancy Uncut, a new podcast dedicated to telling the untold and unspoken stories of pregnancy complications. We are your hosts, Drs. Alex Umbers and Cara Thompson. Pregnancy Uncut acknowledges the Wadawurrung people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners of the land with which we record this. A special welcome to all our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, especially the mothers, daughters, sisters and aunties. Content warning. Heads up, guys. This podcast contains materials on pregnancy loss and complications, and it may be confronting. Hi, Alex. Hey, Cara. I'm so interested to hear more about your chat with Claudine. She sounds like an incredible woman. How did you come across her? Oh, I actually first heard about Claudine and Dave's story on the ABC some years ago. They very generously shared their story with Australia and I remember at the time everyone talking about it around the water cooler um, at work and in my friends and and everywhere I went because the story is truly incredible. It is mind-blowing what this couple has gone through to have the family that they've always wanted. It really puts your own pregnancy journey into perspective and makes you feel so lucky to have the children that you do have. And I think it's a story that really needs to be listened to with an open heart and open mind because Claudine and Dave just go through the unimaginable and are faced with many unexpected challenges and hard, hard decisions that no one ever would hope to be in that position to make. Mm. And I think just the fact that she's open and so generous and courageous with sharing her story, I just absolutely take my hat off to her and her family because we can learn so much from her experience, hey? Yeah, absolutely. And this story that we did hear about originally um, on the ABC some years ago has got another chapter to it that I was not aware of that she shares with us again today, and that is that after going through her interuterine surgery to have her baby Harvey she then had another successful pregnancy, which is amazing. Um, but Claudine shares how she then had another, what seems like another strike of lightning to have another incredibly rare and serious complication happen, which was her uh, uterus ruptured um, following the surgery that she had. So she takes us through that um, emergency situation as well. Um, she really has been through it all. Yeah. Well, let's listen to Claudine's story. Let's do it. Today on Pregnancy Uncut, we're so lucky to welcome Claudine, who's sharing her incredible story of her family. Claudine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Claudine, you were one of eight children. How did that influence your hopes and dreams for your family? Um, I just always assumed that I would have at least a few children. Uh, which I guess is a lot of people think that as well, whether they're from big or small families. But I'd always been surrounded by kids because I was the youngest of the eight and my sister was 17 when I was born, the eldest. So she had, by the time I was 10, I was already an auntie. So there were always kids growing up. Um, And then I did a bit of nannying through my 20s and then I met Dave and we both always just, we actually had our hearts set on four, I think. We also, in my family, had never experienced, none of my sisters or my mum had ever had any complications. Just imagine a big 
beautiful family full of kids. It's smooth sailing. Add to the grandchildren count for my mom and dad. But anyway. It was anything but. Best laid plans. Indeed. So, Claudine, you and Dave got pregnant with your daughter. How did that pregnancy go? Very well. Very well. It was really exciting. We hadn't been married for very long when I fell pregnant with her. And I was 32, I think, because she was born when I was 33. And it was, it was, it was pretty straightforward, actually. Really good birth as far as births go. <laughs> Recovery was pretty good. And she was a delight, actually, and is still a delight. And it was very exciting because we hadn't had a grandchild. My mom and dad hadn't had a grandchild in our family for about six years and the same actually for Dave. So it was really exciting. Because you're the, the baby of your family and now introducing another baby <laughs> into the mix. And we were very lucky that that went really smoothly because it was a very positive start to our family, which is probably why the rest of it really left us a bit <laughs> shell-shocked. Claudine, you've got your first daughter, Eliza, and you find yourself pregnant with daughter number two. Tell me about that experience. Yes. So it was a hard pregnancy from the beginning actually because we had had we had a few things we were living with my mom and dad at the time saving to buy a house and Eliza was only about 14 months I think 15 months when I fell pregnant so I was tired anyway um and I don't know I just didn't feel good from the very beginning we were excited and we wanted to have another baby and we were planning that whole two-year gap thing that everybody does you know to have a child every couple of years but I didn't feel great and then I had just started to feel and all the scans had been fine and I had there was nothing else sort of going on but then we got to the 20-week scan and we found out that she had spina bifida so that was very shocking shocking had you ever heard of those words before and what did they mean to you no I had heard of spina bifida but I didn't really certainly know anyone who had it or really understand anything about the condition or how it came about that I was at home I, the midwife called me after I'd had the scan so I'd gone to like I don't know some other radiology place and she called me and said oh just wondering if anyone spoke to you about your scan and I was like no and then of course I felt like something terrible was going to happen <laughs> after that and then she said, oh, well, I'm just trying to make an appointment for you for today to come in and see our doctors at, in the maternal fetal medicine department. And I sort of sat there listening to – she read out what the scan results were. So it says things like malformation of the hind brain and, from you know, brain and spinal cord and obviously things that sound alarming. And I was a bit like, oh, is – do you know how, how serious this is? And she said, I, I would say quite serious. So then that was terrible and then I called Dave and I was like, um, there's something wrong with the baby. And we went, we did get a, a hospital appointment straight away um, that afternoon and it was just really difficult mm. to hear all of those kinds of things. Um and they did. They went through all of what what the outcomes were for, for babies with spine bifida and they, they talked about the shunt and they talked about mobility issues and they talked about their bowel and their bladder, ongoing health issues and orthopedic issues. You know, I mean, there's a lot of, <laughs> there are a lot of issues. And so we sort of left that appointment 
they give you options about what you can do. And at that stage, funnily enough, at that stage they did mention the surgery, but it was in the States and it was about a hundred grand. Uh, we didn't even have a house, so we we didn't have a hundred grand. They weren't overly sort of optimistic about that surgery. It was very oh, there's this, and they think maybe it helps with this and this, but jury's still out a little bit, especially in Australia. It wasn't on offer. So there's a lot of doctors who felt that the benefits to the baby didn't weren't worth the risk to the mum. They said, you know, the other option is to discontinue the pregnancy, which was also a very alarming, really terrible thought. And then um, I don't know, Dave and I had about – maybe five days to think about it. The other thing is the decision has to be made in a relatively short time. So it's a lot of ethical issues and things that come into into discontinuing pregnancy, especially at 20 weeks because it's a birth. Yeah. Essentially you're induced and you have your baby. In. And this had just blindsided you, Claudine. You'd been having a normal pregnancy up until this point and then suddenly everything changed. Yeah. Yeah, it did. It did, and I still, um, yeah, look, it's still, <laughs> it's, it's difficult to think. Anyway, um, but we did. We decided, I don't know, we just really, um, I just couldn't really imagine, and I guess because I had felt really rubbish through the pregnancy that there was a part of me that felt, well, maybe, maybe it wasn't meant to be. For us, and I, um, I think at the time, given the context, because sometimes I look back and I look at Harvey and I, I think, how on earth did we make a decision to give up our baby? But I think in the context of the time, it was um, that was the choice we we came to. So and that's what happened. That was hard, and it, it very much sounds like. A lot of that choice was taken away, Claudine, in the way you were counselled about, you know, it being such a severe condition and, you know, $100,000 for an operation overseas, that's not an option. That's not a choice that people could make. It was difficult, especially when they, we didn't really understand sort of what the operation would do or how, how it would benefit. And it was in the States. Was, I had another baby. How are we all going to travel there? you know, how long would I have to be there? We just didn't even go into it. So I just, uh, I don't know. We said a whole lot of prayers and hoped that we were letting her go somewhere better, I think, was the, yeah. the thinking behind it, that maybe it wasn't her time. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Yeah. But it did. It took its toll. Absolutely. What was your baby's name? Ah, uh, Sophie. Sophie, beautiful. Mm. And and so much of those incredibly challenging decisions that no one ever, you know, no one can imagine what it must be like to be in those shoes unless you've walked that journey yourself. But so much of that decision really does come down to the people who were around you at the time counselling you and the information that you're given. And as medical practitioners, we need to strive for that non-biased counselling and and provide that information and be supportive for whatever that best decision is for you to make as a family. I have thought a lot about how we were counselled and who, and no one said anything, well, a couple of people might have said things that were a bit specific 
and had definitely directed towards not continuing the pregnancy. I wonder sometimes if doctors, they're trying to make it easier for you and, you know, they feel like the best thing. I mean, I think I think that they told us that the discontinue, the termination rate for pregnancy for things like spina bifida, I think Down syndrome, I'm sure lots of other conditions, but those two are probably the ones I guess that get the most airtime and I think it's 90%, yeah. in some cases 25%. Yeah. So that's big numbers. That's that's lots of people feeling uh, and I think until you're in the position where you're making that choice, it's very easy to look at it as if, oh, families just don't want to have children with it. That's nothing. That is the furthest from where that decision comes from. Um, it's you know it's very hard to look at your own kids even when they're sick. You know, like we thought Eliza had meningitis when she was about oh just before I fell pregnant with Sophie actually, and so she's just over twelve months and it was really stressful. Um, and that was just you know a one-off kind of sickness and. To, when people are telling you that, you know, your child can have all kinds of very complicated things, also a lot of medical intervention, like very um, intrusive intrusive, and of a very personal nature. You know, if they're, it's hard to imagine why when they're giving you a chance for your baby not to have to experience that, that yeah. you would, would choose it. But I also, I mean, I have made both choices. So I can see as a parent how you think it's unfair to deny the life of that child just because it's going to need extra care and the lot and extra help because there's still lots of people with those conditions who are obviously living a great life and who am I to decide wh- whether or not all those things are worth it for them or do you know it's, mm. a, it's a very complicated space it's a really complicated space so I, I wonder sometimes if doctors think that they're making it easier for you by calmly kind of persuading you to go in a direction. Validating that choice. Sort of. There's definitely no right or wrong choice in that scenario. It's um, it's very complicated. Uh, it's very emotionally taxing mm-hmm. and never leaves you, obviously. Yeah. You can't ever, um, you will never know as a parent what, whether, that, whether that choice was, you know, is the right thing but I think it, it is a choice at a point in time and you can only make one so yeah thank you for talking us through that Claudine I, I can't imagine <laughs> having to make a decision like that and as I said I don't think anyone can and you don't no. know what decision you didn't make until you're in it and and how you're counseled is a big part of that absolutely no. and your perspective changes obviously you know, with children, if you have children, if you don't have children, if you're young, if you're old, if you've been through a lot to have that baby, your faith, your, you know, cultural beliefs, your support system, your finances, there's just so many things to consider. Yeah. And like we touched on, a big part of that is how we view disability in the community and how we fund support and how we value people with a disability. And until that is normalised and disability is accepted as a wonderful part of the diversity of our community, then that pays a huge part in our decisions and we can't pretend otherwise. Yes, yes, that's also very true. I did think that at the time. So having gone through the most devastating thing that any parent can and saying goodbye to baby Sophie, your much-wanted and loved daughter, 
you must have very reasonably thought that your awful luck was finished. Yes, we did, we did. And I think that made it easier in some ways at the time. Like we had a, a memorial service for her and lots of people, all my uh, friends were really incredibly supportive and family. And we did kind of put it in a, like had a, had its space for that. Do you know, I felt the pregnancy had been hard. It was very sad. It was very traumatic. Um, but it would be this once occurring mm. again best laid plans just don't know what's coming around the corner <laughs> and so when we we fell pregnant again we wanted to wait until Sophie's due date so she was due on the 20th of March and then we started trying again and I was just very lucky uh, and that's something I'm very conscious of that we were I was very lucky um, in my ability to fall pregnant and I didn't ever take that for granted because I know the road for many is, is difficult. In action. We were fortunate and I fell pregnant again um, not long after that when we, as soon as we started trying again. And so Eliza had just turned two when I fell pregnant with Willow was our next baby. Claudine, did the doctors who looked after you with Sophie talk to you about anything that you could do for the next pregnancy that might reduce your risk? Uh, yes. So they gave us, we had genetic counselling and they had said, you know, the risk is higher uh, for it to happen again. But really, in reality, they don't see that. They just take a high dose folate and everything should be okay. You know, it was the general consensus. Um, and so I did. Yeah. And uh, all pre-pregnancy vitamins and all the stuff that you take. And then, yeah, fell pregnant with Willow. And her 12-week scan was fine. And then, again, I went back to have a scan at 18 weeks and that was terrible because we discovered that also Willow had spine mifter as well. So it was really, do you know, I don't even remember how it was. I think I was really, it was too much. Mm. I remember very clearly the way things went with Sophie and with Willow I just think I might have blocked it all out. I do remember the the girl doing the scan just sort of saying, oh, I'm just going to go and get the doctor. Do you know that feeling? And you're like, oh. and I was by myself as well. I, I think I was so convinced that it couldn't possibly happen again yeah. that um, I don't know. The rate of spine bifida is one in 2,000. What are the chances that lightning could strike twice? I know. And they did say to us that I think the second time it was one in 200, I think is what the, okay. what the risk comes down to. So you're lying in this ultrasound room and your heart must have just dropped when the sonographer said that they'd found a problem. Yeah, it was, it was it was terrible. And then I thought, well, okay, well, we're going ahead with this pregnancy because I was like, oh, maybe it's you know, Sophie come back to us yeah. and we made the wrong decision and we've been given another choice. Um, uh, and I, I just think – so we went down the road of trying to find out a whole lot more. But, again, we are, we're under time pressure. So there's there's – very difficult to make a decision to deliver your baby early because there's a problem. So you've decided to discontinue the pregnancy and um, you are induced and the baby just doesn't survive birth usually. 
so with Sophie, she was already, when, when she was born, she was already, had already died. Um, the older the baby gets, obviously the likelihood of them being alive at birth is higher. And then that brings into another whole layer of worries and trauma. And I think one of the other things that the doctors did tell us about it was that they can also, I think they can do uh, an injection into the baby's heart so that the baby is not, in fact, alive when it's born. And, I, I mean, those things were just, they're still overwhelming to me to think about, to think about the, do you know, like it was hard enough to just be induced and know that you're delivering the baby too early for it to survive. But, you know, when you're on the border of your baby surviving under other circumstances, it's, it's too much. And it, yeah. it's, um, I mean, essentially that's a lethal injection and I just couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't get it. So we were under a lot of pressure to make that decision. So we tried to meet as many people as we could. I spoke to a couple of families who had kids with spina bifida. Uh, I spoke to the whole spina bifida team at Sydney Children's Hospital. So they have a neurologist and a uh, orthopedic person and a urologist, and then the pediatrician who runs that clinic. Uh, and they were all wonderful. They are wonderful. We still see them and. The thing about Willow was that her – so she already had bilateral club feet okay. and very short legs and her Arnold Chiari malformation, which is the formity, for lack of a better word, in the back of the brain were already quite significant. Her ventricles were already quite big. So she was already not in a great way and when we were sort of looking into things that, you know, she was going to have a lot of problems and I just couldn't – I remember asking one doctor, I was like, you know, this condition's been around years and forever. Mm. Uh, why is the, treat- is the treatment not, is not getting any better? Like what's, what, surely there's things now, you know, that they can do. And he just said to me, we're actually not improved patients. We're just getting better at keeping them alive. And so that was very shocking. And he didn't say it in a mean way, but he was just trying to say the problems are still there. They're all there and we can't fix them because it's nerve damage. It's, you know, we met kids or read about kids who'd had like 20 operations before they turned two, wow. all different things on their feet, their legs, their head, their, you know, kids who had had really terrible problems with the shunt for whatever reason to deal with the hydrocephalus um, and they'd had infections and had meningitis. And with every shunt revision, you'd run the risk of a damage happening to the brain. Uh, which then affects cognition. And while spine bifida is generally not associated with poor cognitive function, there are things that can happen in the background that then do affect your cognitive function. Yeah, it was really overwhelming to hear all these different things that could go. And I was saying, you know, if they said your baby's going to need a shunt, you'd be like, okay. If they said your baby's going to have problems walking, you might say, okay, we can deal with it. If your, problem's going to have, your baby's going to have problems with their bowel and their bladder, then you might say, that's fine, we'll deal with that. But when you have them all together, mm. plus the operations, plus this intrusive nature, I just, I don't know, it was too much for me to think about that that would, I was thinking about a little girl with all those things and I just, I don't know, maybe we thought it was worse than it was going to be because now I know quite a few people with spine bifida and they're perfectly okay. But it sounds like with most conditions, there's a real range of severity. And it yes. sounds like little Willow at that very early point in pregnancy was already showing the very severe end of the potential range of condition. Yeah, it felt like that. It did. Um, 
And that's the thing that Dave and I were saying, you know, things could be fine and we could go ahead. And I wish in hindsight that I'd had more faith in that, that it would have been okay. Do you know, I mean, you can't change things, but I, I wish that I had had a stronger faith that things would be okay rather than feeling like I was being given an opportunity to make things okay. Mm. And I think that's how we justify it is that you can make the choice to not have them go through all those things yeah. or um, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, look, it's it's still it is haunting. <laughs> um, yeah, I can hear it in your voice, Claudine. <laughs> but absolutely what you describe, you know, tiny little baby going through countless anaesthetics and operations before they're two years old. That's heartbreaking. And I think, as you say, most parents knowing that make that decision, but that does not make that any easier at all. No, no, no. And I'm really conscious of of families that are brave enough and have enough faith and strength to go go ahead and and as I remember a family saying you know if your baby arrived and the di- the problems were diagnosed at birth you forge ahead and you do your best and you give your baby every chance that you can with therapy or early intervention or whatever and I just wonder why you know just 20 weeks earlier that didn't occur to me I don't know Anyway, it's a different times. Yeah. One thing that some families talk about as part of their decision-making is that they have other children, and in your case you had little Eliza to look after, and that can play into that decision of what's life going to be like for your other child if you're in and out of hospital every every second week. Yeah. Yes, that did occur to us. Mm. It did. Yeah. It occur- and my whole family, uh, we're very close, and... I felt in making that decision also it would involve their help and their support. And another thing actually that really occurred to to me especially was if something happened to Dave or I yeah. and we had a baby who needed all that extra help, it's hard enough to, to leave behind a, a child that is totally able to function in the world normally. And I don't know, I just couldn't get my head around that at the time. But since then my thinking changed and I thought I shouldn't be living my life as if I'm going to die tomorrow. So it's just so unfair that you had to go through that decision-making once and then to be faced with it again is is truly unimaginable. Did Mm. you encounter any sort of ignorant views from people about why didn't you take the folic acid or, you know, is this something that you've caused? Oh, look, <laughs> a few people were like, oh, what about folic acid as if it was like a panacea or just as if it was something that people didn't know. But I will tell you the irony is I didn't take anything for Eliza. Yeah, because wow. I unexpectedly. And I actually, we did go on to have another baby who doesn't have spina bifida and I didn't take anything for her either because she was a surprise too. But, you know, I was taking high doses, normal doses. Now, because we were planning our pregnancy for Sophie, I had, was taking prenatal vitamins. So I don't know. Nobody could tell us. No, it's one of those things, isn't it? We sort of have best, best laid plans to recommend certain things in pregnancy, but sometimes that translates as, therefore, if that outcome happens, it's your fault because you didn't do it right, when in fact that's not yeah. the case at all. No, 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 no. It's, 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 it was nothing. And But we did have genetic testing as mm. well. Um, 
we were eligible for genetic testing. I think the Garvin Institute were doing something at the time and the doctor at the hospital was so lovely and we had genetic material from Willow and from Dave and I and I don't nothing, nothing. So... So you've gone through this, you know, nightmare tragedy experience twice now. Is was there a part of you that thought we can't we can't do this again? We can't we can't even try again. There was a hundred percent a part of me that wondered can how long can this go on for? And then how stressful is the next pregnancy going to be? Yeah. But you know, we kept looking at Eliza and just you know, she was really looking forward to having a sibling and I just couldn't not try for her. But saying goodbye to Willow really took its toll. Um, it, was a, it was a really, really difficult recovery and, and I actually ended up with a, a postpartum hemorrhage from that as well. So it just felt like <laughs> it just kept on coming and I couldn't. I didn't function that well after that. Uh, I didn't really want to go back to work. Yeah. Um, I didn't really, yeah, I didn't know, actually. And it was lucky we said all the time, thank God we had Eliza, because she really kept us going. Um, I don't think anyone would expect you to pick up and carry on after that. Yeah. Well, it was really difficult. Yeah, of course. Um, but we, you know, we well, got to, don't you? And I didn't want Eliza to be affected by that kind of grief. So we sort of had to. Was, we were so lucky in so many ways, though, because we did have really fabulous support from friends and family. My friends were really wonderful and they were very helpful and helpful in practical ways and helpful emotionally you get through it so and Dave was great as well Dave Dave still is great (laughs) and he was a very strong and reliable partner to be having at that time he's very supportive we did we did get through it together and we waited a bit longer the next time, not that much longer because, of course, you're always conscious of my By this stage, I was getting old. <laughs> By today's standards, not that old, but it felt old. So we did, we did, we thought we'd try one more time and see how it goes. So uh, third time lucky is what we were hoping. But, um, oh, look, again, just, just didn't. The stars were not – actually, they did. I, I shouldn't say that. The stars did end up aligning, but it was a hard road to get there. And um, I fell pregnant when uh, Willow was born in August and um, at the end of August, and then she was due just uh, around Christmas. And I fell pregnant in about March or April, I think, the next year. So just as Eliza turned three. Beautiful. So now having gone through this experience twice, what was that feeling like walking into the ultrasound room for Harvey? Well, MFM were really fantastic. So the maternal fetal medicine team at um, Royal Hospital for Women were really, really great. And they we are having scans all the time. So we had a scan at 12 weeks. Everything's looking good. We came back for a scan at 16 weeks. 
not looking so good. Mm. And I could tell, so our doctor who had looked after me with Willow and who had then also looked after me with the postpartum hemorrhage, she she was just like, I'm so sorry. I think she was almost as upset as us (laughs) having to deliver that news again, yet for a third time your baby's got spina bifida. And I was just really angry and, well, at 16 weeks. I think initially I was like, that's it. I'm not having any more children. Um, And then we sat in the room for a bit and spoke to her and it was 16 weeks so we had a bit more time, a a significant amount of time up our sleeve and um, we were chatting afterwards and she was like, I'm just – so sorry, you know, and I think she was a bit like, well, you know, your options. And I said, is there anything else that's new? There surely, is there something? And she was like, well, <laughs> strangely, coincidentally, my colleague in Brisbane is doing the first in utero surgery in Australia next week. And I was like, well, that's Providence if ever, <laughs> if ever there was. It's incredible. So we flew to Brisbane. I was like, well, we're going to go to Brisbane. Yeah, and we went full up and met Dr. Glenn Gardner, and our whole perspective was changed. And I think I don't—I forget how what a life-changing moment that was meeting him. And I, I think I cannot tell you how how wonderful that meeting was and it wasn't even really about he certainly wasn't promising any miracles <laughs> he recognized how much we needed something and i think that sometimes in contrast to some doctors who are so focused on the statistics and the outcomes and the, the medical side that they're missing the human side and what we needed was to have that baby and we needed to give him the best chance that we could And that is what that surgery felt like to us. And by a miracle of a thousand prayers that people were saying for us, Harvey has come out of that surgery and is totally great. Incredible to think that you were sitting in the ultrasound room talking to that specialist, thinking, you know, third time, we're going to say goodbye to our third baby in a row with the same thing. And to have that completely turned upside down with that news of it happening just that week for the first time in Australia is unbelievable. It is unbelievable. Yeah, we flew to Brisbane, we met him, we came back to Sydney, we stayed in touch with him over the time. We had a lot of conversations about there's a whole lot of things that have to add up to make sure that that surgery is going to give you the best chance and your baby the best chance. So they look at a whole lot of stuff. Um, where the lesion is, like where the where the spina bifida actually is in the spine. So Harvey's was L3, L4, I think. And Dave and I were able to stay close by to the hospital. I was in hospital for 10 days, I think, eight, eight or 10 days. And, yeah, look, it was a heavy going. <laughs> if I think about it, I was so focused and so happy to be having the baby that, all the other things I just was like, well, this is what it is. This is what you've got to do and just get on with it. Yeah. And I think back to it now and it was, it was big, big surgery. It was huge. Did you encounter any doubters or people trying to talk you out of doing the operation? Plenty. 
even friends and family. Uh, and if they didn't say it directly to our face, they were certainly saying it behind our back. Uh, and not, again, probably not in a way that was mean, but was out of concern for us, for me, actually. Do you know, probably to other people that sounded like mm. false hope or, oh, gosh, what's she thinking going into big surgery like that, operating on a baby that hasn't even been born. It was open fetal surgery as well, so that everything had to be opened up and then stapled back together. And there are there were risks. There were risks of the baby arriving early. There was membrane rupture. There was a million things that could have gone wrong. And even in the operation itself, I think even managing the anaesthetic for me and the baby was a big procedure, a big operation. Our obstetrician and the, the specialist midwife from maternal fetal medicine flew up to watch the surgery, which was really nice to see them in the operating theatre. So they give you an epidural and then you then they put you under general as well and then you stay under epidural for about two or three days, I think, I think maybe 48 hours just to keep everything calm and you know, so they can monitor you in intensive care and then you go on to like the prenatal ward, I think, and hang around there <laughs> just trying to get back up. <laughs> Claudine, it sounds like a huge operation and when the team in Brisbane performed it, I understand that they'd done one with the team from America and you were the very first operation that they were doing independently in Australia. Yes, yep. I'm really just so happy that that worked out like that for everybody. Obviously, I'm happy for for us and our son um, and our family, but even for the doctors who were, you know, it was a huge undertaking to get that surgery to be possible here. I feel privileged that we were part of it. Going into the operation, was the team quite optimistic of a good outcome or were they trying to... Be realistic about those risks that you talked about of preterm birth, rupturing the membranes, losing the baby, not taking Harvey home. Um, I think they were realistic, but I think there's only so much realism you need. They certainly didn't upplay the benefits and they didn't downplay the risks, but, I mean, we knew what it was and we thought the risk was totally worth it. And that's another thing. Like it's all about your perspective. Do you know we made the decision for the girls with a very different perspective to how we went in to surgery with Harvey. And I just couldn't believe that that was on offer at that time. Do you know, it was just too coincidental. Yeah. And you mentioned with Sophie that from the get-go you just had that feeling that it wasn't working out. Did you have the opposite with Harvey? Did you feel in yourself that this was going to be your baby that you could take home? Um, oh, look, I think I'd stopped myself from thinking anything. I think with the surgery and all the things around it, I felt like that would have to be working out. I felt like that couldn't be possible if it wasn't going to work out. I I just thought, you know, why would we be taken down that road? And I was aware of it, but, you know, you got to, that's what I was saying about, I wish that my faith had been different with the girls. I wish I had looked at it differently because with Harvey that's all I did was pray for things to be okay for him and for us. I wish I wish I'd had that kind of faith perspective before with the girls because um yeah it was a much nicer way to be in pregnancy uh, and it was a very distinct feeling of hopefulness versus hopelessness yeah. 
you know, when we were pregnant with Harvey, as soon as the doctor in Sydney, Dr. Shand, told me that this operation was going ahead in Brisbane, I was like, that's all I needed. And then when we actually met Glenn and we just, we, we were like so elated and feeling so positive, we felt really good about it. Claudine, being the first independent operation like this in Australia, it was recorded and some of the footage has then been available to see. What was it like yeah. watching back and watching that operation on your son? Uh-huh. So we've still got all the photos, <laughs> photo reel. Um, really amazing. And it makes me really, really grateful that I was able to be in that position uh, to have something that's also been able to help other people. I think, I think it's really lucky. I feel really lucky. And, and it is just remarkable that, that they can do that kind of stuff. At the time of the operation, Harvey was only 23 weeks, so tiny. Yes. Six, 700 grams. Yeah. When they did the operation, they needed to make a big cut in your uterus. Um, and because of that, that then changes the risk to the remainder of the pregnancy and for future pregnancies. Yeah. How did the rest of your pregnancy play out? Pretty well, actually. So they would were planning to do a Caesar delivery at 37 weeks. We only got to 33 weeks, but those 10 weeks afterwards were pretty good. Uh, it was a lot of bed rest. Yeah. I didn't go too many places or do too much. And Dave was really great at home. He was really good and family were really helpful with Eliza. Yeah, and then at 33 weeks I just didn't feel very well. I just had like quite a few pains, side, pains in my side and stuff, and I went into hospital on a Sunday because Dave was actually away and my mum had come to stay with me and was like, go to hospital. <laughs> you're, make, you're making everybody nervous. Um, so he said, if not, you're not going for yourself, just go for me. And I think, you know, we had been through so much and it was sensible that we did go. And we got to the hospital and oh, it was a Sunday night, so they did an ultrasound and nobody seemed to think anything. And then on Monday morning, Dave was back and he, I was talking to him and I was like, oh, I think I'm going home soon. Can you come pick me up? And then truly I hung up the phone and about 10 doctors came into the room and were like, we're delivering your baby now. <laughs> and I was like, what? Oh, and then I started crying and then um, – and then they came in with this horrible piece of paper that basically tells you that you could die. You know, it's called, yeah. what's it called? The consent form. And then I was thinking, oh, goodness, this is all too much. But they said that Harvey didn't have any amniotic fluid. And I think their concern was is that if it wasn't leaking mm. obviously from me, that then it must have been, there must have been maybe. A Yes, yes, that was the worry. That vertical incision on your uterus is, can easily break apart more so than the normal transverse or crossways incision that we would do for a normal cesarean birth. Yeah, so that was what they had worried about. And I think they felt at 33 weeks, again, after everything we'd been through, he was in good shape, I was in good shape. They yeah. were just like, get him out. <laughs> and put him in a humidity crib. And he was big, he was a big baby, he was 2.1 kilos already, so... I think he – and he did very well. He came out screaming. He had CPAP for about eight hours and then he was just okay. He was all right. He did really well in terms of growing and everything. And so we didn't really have any complications. We had – he's had big scars. He's probably – he's the first baby born there who'd had that um, operation, of course. Mm. 
and he had big three big scars on his back and they were the biggest thing that people were wondering what to do with a brand new baby with all those scars and um, he had like this adermal matrix patch because they couldn't do a skin graft across two of the scars and uh, they were sort of he still had a few stitches and people were wondering do we take the stitches out or do we let them dissolve so all those things but the other in terms of his prematurity he did incredibly well um and he actually came home the day before he was due to be delivered by caesar at 37 weeks so amazing yeah we were very lucky and again really lucky with family and friends supporting dave and eliza it was a strange time that NICU is a funny place and if harvey hadn't have had the surgery his prognosis for walking and bladder bowels all of those things would have been quite dire after the surgery how has his development gone um so he hasn't had any problems he's hit all his milestones he doesn't have any mobility problems i think maybe one of his legs is a tiny bit weaker than the other one but it doesn't affect him playing sport or running or walking or doing anything he's um it's really quite remarkable actually but yeah so half's doing like better than we ever ever would have expected or hoped, dared to hope for. I mean, you hope – we did have some indications that his legs were okay because um, – so at 23 weeks, once they close the defect, the, the idea is that any further damage will be alleviated. The whole thing with spina bifida is that as the baby gets bigger, so sometimes you'll see babies at 20 weeks or 25 weeks and, you know, their legs are moving and things are looking okay, and then all of a sudden by 30 weeks – you know, things aren't as good and you'd lose the leg movement. And mm. they think that's a, a combination of if the, the little sack on their back uh, bursts or yeah. then the, the actual spinal co- cord is exposed to amniotic fluid and the friction. So as the baby gets bigger, its mm. back is pressing against your uterus wall and then, that you know, every time the baby's moving, it's, and cause nerve damage. So yeah. we were incredibly lucky with Harvey. And in the images, one of the photographs is like a, it's like something from National Geographic. You can see as they open up my uterus and they turn him to do the surgery that he's got a giant bubble on his back. Mm. So I think we were just very lucky that his spinal cord wasn't damaged because it was still encased in that big bubble. And then they were able to close it up. And then the damage didn't occur. So we could actually see on an ultrasound up until the day he was operated on that his feet were moving. So we knew we were a good chance of having leg movement. And that is just luck of the draw with spina bifida really because I know there are other parents who would have opted for the surgery even when their babies already had a club foot or um, not as much movement. So that was something that we knew and we did hope for, his leg movement. There's no way I expected for him not to experience trouble with his bladder and his bowel. I just thought that was almost a given. And he hasn't experienced that either, which is remarkable. And the shunt was 50-50, or actually technically the statistics say it reduced the rate of shunting by a half. So I think in normal babies born with spina bifida, I think it's almost 100%, it's like 90% that they need a shunt. And I think in the kids who have this surgery, it's only 40%. 
So we were very lucky, but that was something that was on a knife's edge for a long time, 12, maybe even 18 months of his, the first 18 months of his life because they were constantly doing head ultrasounds while his fontanelle was still open and then it changed and they did an MRI and I was always, he was a terrible sleeper and it was I probably made it worse because I was so anxious but also wondering, is he not sleeping because it's his brain, is he not his back is sore. Is this something I can't see and I can't tell? So I would say even though we took him home and everything was going well, I had always worries. Mm. I still have worries. I mean, I'm still worried. <laughs> More worries. I was already a warrior before I had kids and now I'm like a wreck. But <laughs> he he's doing exceptionally, exceptionally well. It's just incredible. It really does feel like a miracle. And he's getting to an age now where he we can talk to him about that about that story and about how remarkable it is. Can he still see the little scars on his back? Oh yeah, they're they're heavy scars. <laughs> they're pretty big. Um, so yes, you can definitely see them. But we told him that's a cool story for yeah, him. So. Makes him incredibly special. Yeah. So you said you'd always wanted four children, and you have got four children at this point, but had said goodbye to two of them. Did your family feel complete after Harvey was born? Um, It felt like it had to be complete, actually. I think it was more the feeling. We're lucky to be here. We're definitely not having any more. There was always a part of us that probably wanted more kids. And then Harvey had just, just about to turn two and I thought, oh, I thought I might do a pregnancy test and then found out I was pregnant. So that was a very strange feeling. I called Glenn straight away and I was like, hit me with the with the risks, all the risks, the risk of if the baby does have spine bifida, what on earth are we meant to do? If the baby doesn't have spine bifida, what on earth are we meant to do? How's the pregnancy going to go if we continue it? I hadn't taken any folate or any anything because I wasn't planning on having a baby. And he was really great. And he said, oh, look, there's a few people doing some research on on some numbers when the baby's small just to see if we can get a diagnosis a bit earlier. So just come in, basically come in for a scan every week and we'll see what's going on. So we did a scan at seven weeks. I think we did another one at maybe 10 weeks. And then I think we might have done, we did the 12-week one. And all of those scans were okay. And um, basically once we got to 20 weeks, they're like definitely no spine bifida. So that was a really good turning point. It was a very, um, even at 16 weeks, because that's when we found it for Harvard, they were fairly confident. And, and so that was really good. Um, and then our attention turned to all the other complications <laughs> once the pregnancy was going, that there could be, you know, placenta accreta from the scars, there could be uterine rupture from the vertical scar. I don't know what else there could be because I was 100. No, I wasn't 100. I was 39, but I felt like I was 100. <laughs> and so, you know, like that whole, all the risks that come with that. So we had namnio and we had all the things, so many things. Wow. So they were going to do a scheduled Caesar at 37 weeks because you can't, they didn't want me going to labour. They said going into labour was a no-no because of the risk of the scar rupturing from Harvey's operation. And I was like, that's fine. The week before the scheduled Caesar, I go in for my appointment, everything's feeling okay, feeling big, feeling tired, ready for that baby. 
So the scheduled Caesar was for the for the Monday, and we were meant to come into the hospital at like six thirty in the morning. And at about eleven p.m. on Sunday night, I had terrible pain, a crippling pain in my stomach, and then could not move. And then, and there it was, uterine rupture. Eight hours early. So that was rude and actually quite quite traumatic of all of the things that we had. Everything else was kind of managed trauma, you know, like it was sad and there was a lot of grief, but it didn't feel dangerous, whereas that having Genevieve was, it was, it was terrifying. Yeah. It was. Like the, the pain and the inability to move was really frightening and then got to the hospital in an ambulance and once they had the monitor on and they could hear the baby's heartbeat, I felt better, but I still was in agonising pain and I had to have a general anaesthetic because I couldn't get the epidural in. And so I didn't get to hold her when she was born. I mean, all these things probably sound a bit ungrateful after everything. Not at all. Not at all, Claudine. I was really thinking, oh, yes, one last chance to have this baby and actually get to hold the baby when they're born and have things be a bit normal. No, it wasn't meant to be. When we were chatting earlier, Claudine, you talked about that feeling that you've gotten so far with this baby without spina bifida and you're so close to the finish line and yet she's about to be snatched from you at that last moment. Yes, it was terrifying. And I reckon I must have said a hundred Hail Marys just to just to keep us both okay yeah. and safe. They say people in a in a situation that's really dire, you have to keep your wits about, you know, you become very calm and very very focused. And that was all I was focused on was just for both of us to be all right. And sure enough. After you'd gone under general anaesthetic, they opened up your abdomen and found a belly full of blood. <laughs> yeah, I think that came as a surprise to everybody. Three liters, I think they said. Uh, and they gave me whatever is in a unit of blood. I gave me a couple of those. But she was fine. So that was the important thing. My membranes hadn't ruptured, just the muscle layers, which they said that's why I had felt like I was having a contraction for three hours. The muscle had literally ripped apart. But she was fine. So they delivered her by regular Caesar and then she went to Dave straight away. She didn't need any help with anything. You know, I was feeling pretty rough, to be honest with you. I think I stayed in hospital for, God, oh, it felt like forever. I think I was there for nine days or something, eight days. But, yeah, that recovery was, was, was tough. Claudine, what has made you want to share your story with others? No one talks about it. And... Do you know, maybe if I had just had the experience with Sophie, I wouldn't talk about it either. But we have been really fortunate and really blessed to have experienced the journey that we have. And I I think a lot of help comes from sharing stories. I had heard someone else share a story about the kinds of things that can go on with having babies and making those kinds of decisions, then maybe I would have felt, you know, it's nice to know you're not alone. I think. Um, and we have received such overwhelmingly fantastic help from the medical professionals that supported us along the way, that the, the doctors, the obstetricians, the midwives at the Royal Hospital for Women in Randwick um, in Sydney and obviously the Marta in Brisbane, Marta Mothers and Dr Glenn Gardner, all those 
people have been sensational. And um, I feel like we, you know, I'm so grateful that it's great to be able to give an opportunity to, to just just to highlight what those people do for families. I think we were we have been really fortunate in so many ways, despite all the things that might look like they had gone wrong. But I also think if I have the opportunity to highlight sometimes the support around like in the aftermath of those things has isn't great. And the hospital system's funny because you know you you have all this very intense time with one set of carers, like the obstetric side. Then your baby's born and you're thrown into the nursing side with the doctors and the paediatricians in the NICU. It would be nicer, I think, if there was a better continuity of care in terms of, you know, the people that you see in the children's hospital are interested in your child. Mm-hmm. People that you see in the obstetricians are interested in you. Um, and I did, I think, after having Genevieve, I did go back to the doctor and I was like, I can't, my, I'm, I feel a bit overwhelmed. Yeah, she did say it's probably you've probably got PTSD or, and I I mean I am in a fortunate position where I have a lot of family and decent support networks around, <clears throat> and I have gone to people on and off with the on a mental health care plan and stuff just to download some things. But I think hospitals are getting better at it now. But I know like when we came home, that was the end of it. Mm. No one to pick up the phone and say, "How are you going?" After that massive surgery it's a funny system where you have this very intense period where people know everything about you and you're seeing them every week and you and then they, you don't see them abruptly changes but Claudine I can guarantee that everyone who was involved in your care and every step of the way with your babies hasn't forgotten you and won't forget you and they won't forget your experience because it's truly unique And by sharing it, so many people will learn so much about dealing with these incredibly difficult decisions and, as you said, the options that are out there. Claudine, thank you so much for sharing your incredible story with us today on the podcast. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. If you got something out of this episode, please remember to subscribe, rate and review our podcast. Also, we love hearing from you. If you have feedback or suggestions, email us at pregnancy.uncut at gmail.com or you can find us at pregnancyuncut.com or on Instagram. If you or someone you know wants to share their story with us, we'd love to hear from you. Talk soon.